very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's discussion, we just want to mention we've got a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider tossing us a buck a month there, but if not, leave us a review on iTunes. Today, we're going to be taking a look at a couple of pieces. The first is Freud's Mystic Writing Pad, and the second will be Derrida's Freud and the Scene of Writing. Going to be a nice little companion piece here. Since Derrida mentions mystic writing pad quite a few times in his writing or in this piece rather from writing indifference right was the name of the collection of essays if i'm not mistaken yeah the collection of essays he this one's interesting in terms of derrida's piece because it's actually like a lecture it's bookended with like a preface and an epilogue by derrida really short little bookends of what he wrote if you will to as supplements uh-huh, <laughs> before adding this to the collection. So this is interesting because it's a lecture, but it's got written pieces on either end, just kind of summing up sort of what the lecture was, was going to be about and then sort of tying things together. Because I do think he ends with that quote from uh, symptoms, inhibitions and anxiety that, that you posted earlier and on Twitter today about sort of writing and writing in this like sexual metaphor and Freud and, and walking on mother earth, it's constitute these like forbidden acts metaphorically. I think that's how he ends the lecture in a nice little what the fuck moment. And then he, (laughs) right. He kind of extrapolates, okay, here's where Freud at odds with at odds, but continuing in a kind of deference with uh, the history of metaphysics. Here's how we could like, apply these to four different fields, which he, what, the psychopathology of everyday life, which he kind of critiques Freud a little bit for making the direct analogy between slips of the tongue and slips of writing. Obviously, for Derrida, slips of the pen, slips of writing would be not simply an extension of slips of the tongue, that that field itself should be considered. The other field was what? A history of writing, which he says is only sort of started to begin. And one can think that his initial publications of writing a difference of of grammatology, for example, would open up this field of a history of writing, a becoming literary of the literal, right? So he's kind of saying until now, let's just say literary criticism in general is focused on literary signifieds. And he's to now start looking at literary signifiers and what that what that means would be i think something close to what 
Kristeva might think of in terms of poetics, the revolution in poetic language. That would be my nearest analogy. Obviously, Derrida might mean something to the side of it, but I think that they would be in a similar field. And then the fourth one is a, a psychoanalytic graphology, which she points to Melanie Klein, which, you know, I think it's just insofar as psychoanalysis is to be interested in, let's say, something like the agency of the letter in the field of the unconscious, as Lacan, you know, might say. I think it's sort of like Lacan is is perhaps trekking out a certain area. Obviously, Derrida and Lacan are going to be, you'll see, it's probably still today, they're they're put in interesting conjunctions. So a psychoanalytic graphology, we can think of we can think of this essay on Freud in the scene of writing, on the mystic writing pad, et cetera, on the metaphor and analogy of the machineism of the writing pad in Freud's thinking of the psyche. I think that's part of what we could say constitutes an entry into what Derrida is calling a psychoanalytic graphology, right? What is the role of writing, not just in relation to the unconscious, but into temporalization, into yeah, all yeah. of these, all of these concept, uh, concepts that he's even calling into question, right? With some of the concepts he calls into question are consciousness, the unconscious perception, memory, reality, all the stuff that he talks about in, in this, in this essay, which might seemingly be givens or or something conventionally understood need to be kind of called into question, deconstructed. We'll get to Derrida soon. I think I mentioned to you, maybe, maybe we should start with, with Freud. Yeah, it sets the scene or the stage. Ah, exactly. Sets the scene, <laughs> the stage. The originary uh, like violence of uh, Freud's project. And it's funny that you mentioned the project because one of what, what Derrida is trying to show is this shift from this neurological interest in 1895 with the project for a scientific psychology that was never published during his lifetime, but that Freud was, I mean, he was gung-ho about it. He was invested in it. He was <laughs> libidinally connected in showing how we can see in the, in this early writing, if you will, some of the earliest, you know, around the time of studies on hysteria co-written with Breuer, Freud is sketching out how certain things like memory and perception would work in a neuronal type of, let's call it serialism or whatnot in, in the interaction of, of, of neuro, I'll just say neurons, but I think that spelling is interesting. Neurones the, with, with yeah. the E because I don't think they are neurons in the sense in which we would take them in in contemporary neurology, right? They are these are hypothetical abstract entities. But Freud is trying to sketch out through this system of different neurons, right? One for perception, one for one for memory, um, one for um, a kind of inner interstice and interlude between them. He's already thinking about how certain questions that he'll he'll ask about the system that perceives 
we could say the the quote unquote present because obviously Derrida is calling into question the whole notion of a of a full present or yeah of temporality itself. But a psychical si- system that is receiving excitations from the outside and in perception is not the same system that is actually recording. So the reception of of excitations and the recording of them happen in two different systems. And this is a question that Freud will will that will plague Freud to the point where Derrida points out rightly that one of the last times it comes up, I think it's in the metapsychological paper, The Unconscious, which is a great paper. Uh, you know, Freud is he'll restate the question about this when let's say an unconscious trace is detected and and becomes conscious, is there a fresh registration in another system, in another locality, or is it really just a shifting, a movement of energies? Something that he's he's kind of not willing to answer, but he raises again this question of a of these systems and their quote unquote registrations, right there. It's not a question that he's willing to settle on because it would be a speculative answer. Either way would kind of cut off certain avenues. So he leaves it as this open question. But in any case, that was one of the things that I remember very clearly throughout Freud's life is this insistence that the permanent traces, although not unalterable, but the permanent traces left in the unconscious, the recording, the registration done there is different than the perceptual conscious system receiving the excitations. One in the same system cannot record and receive excitations from the outside. So there, there is this like layering, if you yeah. will, already, even back to 1895 and the project. So Derrida is trying to think about this gap in time, the shift from a neurological basis in 1895 through the interpretation of dreams, which is really kind of supposedly the birth of psychoanalysis proper up to the mystic writing pad in 1925, that this question of the psychical system as a writing machine is although it obviously takes form towards that later years, it's already there like conceptually and inceptually, right? In in the earliest of Freud's writing, the problem of perception and recording and memory. These these are like classic questions for Freud. It may be just the metaphorical means of explaining them or thinking them through shift. So that anticipates what Derrida does. And we can now maybe talk a little bit more if you want about Freud in general or about the uh, the note on the Mr. Writing Pad, the little six page essay that Freud has for us. I mean, I think we should just go ahead and talk about the Mystic Writing Pad itself. And it's, I mean, you kind of hinted a little bit already towards the sort of topological structure of the metaphor of the Mystic Writing Pad and its different layers and different, I suppose, components related to perception and memory and the unconscious and versus conscious perceptions, et cetera, which I think is quite good. I mean, it's very, it's a very striking image. It's very easy to perceive, right? I don't know if, I mean, I recall, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording about actually having actually played with the mystic writing pad, because I absolutely recall. That's really cool. Doing these because it definitely adds. So you have a top layer, which is usually a, a sort of piece of plastic Below that was a thinner, I don't know, like a carbon sheet or something that would sort of 
stick to the top plastic layer and then you sort of use a stylus and you know draw or what have you and so some of that pressure applied does leave permanent marks within the backing which is like a black waxy backing it's a softer material right and so that's where the contrast the way that the sort of i guess the carbon paper we'll call it for black i don't i'm honestly not right sure right like, it, like it actually is. Is, is it is it kind of like tracing paper when you like trace comics and stuff is the topic top it's layer? almost like whenever you know i don't know like the old duplicate sort okay. of like you know like an old school credit card machine or yeah, something right. like that where you're right, signing right. like you would have multiple copies that would capture the initial signature but it's like below beneath that right because it is it is in triplicate if you think about it right, right. you got yeah, the top exactly. layer as you said you've got the middle layer and then you've got the the wax resin the, the kind back. of the substrate let's call yeah, it maybe. yeah the substrate yeah i like that yeah which falls into you know a very clear metaphor for sort of the unconscious it still does leave if you press hard enough it's yeah. going to leave an indelible mark in the wax backing and once you pull up that top sheet it'll basically is going to erase anything that was there previously and just leave a trace in the backing which may not be visible but is still physically present in the wax right and derrida ends the essay with this again anticipating calling into question this is what he says freud's most platonic moment when he says the analogy breaks down because even if that resin that wax substrate retains those marks it's not like our memory where we can't we can't magically it would be a it would be a real mystic writing pad if we could pull at all times from the marks that's been made on that substrate but we can't unless we like visibly inspect it we can't pull from the substrate up to the top we can only go vertically down if that makes sense freud saying in our memory our substrate we can pull from the substrate to the consciousness, to the top layer, but in the writing pad, you can't do that. Even if the substrate retains those marks like our memory, mm -hmm. there's something more alive. This is his platonic inspiration. There's something more alive in the actual psyche than in the dead machine. This is, this is part of Derrida's point about life and death, these classical oppositions in, in metaphysics. So, I mean, I, I think that that's, that's already too anticipating. That's really interesting. But yeah, I mean, we can. Maybe I can find, see if there's like, if you can still buy one of these things. <laughs> yeah. The link in the show notes or something. So people can kind of have a idea, a visual reference point. Yeah, it, it is really interesting. There's to bound think. to be a video or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure there's there's a video. Maybe there's a YouTube, <laughs> do it yourself, make your own yeah, writing that pad. sounds right. You know, maybe like some silly putty. <laughs> something like that maybe that's too malleable but in any case yeah i mean it's interesting that as freud makes clear if we didn't have the intermediary layer right if we only had the wax substrate and the top sheet the top which we sheet, could call a membrane the yeah if we only had the top membrane it would potentially tear rip it would be subject to wear and tear and i think this is Freud's point about he had always thought about the fact that the perceptual layer, which is receiving excitations, needs a substrate. Well, I don't want to use that same word since we're it's we, it needs a kind of protective shell. 
there needs to be another layer, the intermediary layer protecting from the intensity of the excitations, right, uh, yeah, yeah. whether it be the ego or the cycle apparatus depends on the formulation that Freud is working with, but there needs to be some kind of protective shell and that breaches in these shells can, we can think conventionally lead to a kind of trauma that only after the, after the fact, not treglykite, right? Only apreku after the fact will lead to symptoms, let's say symptom formation, these breaches, but the breaches don't necessarily have to be from outside. I think Freud's point, his discovery in psychoanalysis is they don't, obviously we can think of traumas externally. It makes sense that a, a large enough intensity of excitation from the outside could lead to breaches in the shell. We can imagine even the term that we think of it's outdated now, but the term shell shock, Obviously, we talk about post-traumatic stress disorder these days, but there's some there's a kernel of truth in the notion of shell shock in the specifically I'm thinking of like this terminology that feels more relevant to like World War One or something like this, right? The reality of the the brutality of the trenches, the artillery, the the constant barrage of of noise and and other things. But, you know, for Freud, the more relevant to psychoanalysis, although not the only thing, because obviously external events happen, but it's the internal excitations from which we cannot run away and flee. The internal excitations of the drive, those breaches are the ones that perhaps interest Freud at least as much, which is why the question of, you know, for example, like the Wolfman's primal scene of of the dream of the wolves in the tree representing coitus otergo or whatever the fuck he calls it the the doggy style parental coitus you know it doesn't matter if it's a if it's a fantasy or if it actually was perceived there's a reality to the intensity that inside and outside don't really matter as much anyway yeah anything else about the apparatus itself before we maybe talk about a little bit more about uh, Freud's analogy with the psychical system, although I guess I've already started talking about it. There's a certain, I guess, relationship to the way that RAM, you know, random access memory versus long-term storage on a computer would function in sort of a similar fashion. Like RAM is always rewritten versus the long long-term storage, although that would be more in that kind of platonic model of being able to retrieve the information so it doesn't quite fit in exactly the same way but i think maybe the random acts the ram metaphor does sort of work for the we'll put in in quotes the present moment or the present work or like right work of perception or something i, I actually like your analogy here and we'll i mean i guess that goes to the machine a little bit too, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess we're we're lay persons, so we're not going to try to step on the on the ground of computer scientists. Our friend Griffin would be able to help us here. RAM and 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 ROM or hard drive space. I think more accurately, hard drive space and RAM. I think that's that's probably a better analogy, even than the Mystic Writing Pad, because then Freud would have to say. Would, would have to complicate, it would complicate Freud's platonic inspirations because to a certain extent, even when you delete files, quote unquote, 
yeah there's, there's a trace still, there, yeah there's still these traces that remain so it is much more like the psychical and, uh, and so okay. that that well. the, you know what i'm saying like <laughs> yeah like the, the psychical and the and the machine opposition starts to break down a little bit when we look at computers and also it'd be interesting to think about whether freud would be able to accord with agree with uh the analogy in computer space the way that files are stored for example a lot of times when they're deleted or stored they are kind of stored in in pieces kind of like a torrent file is broken up into these pieces so like is there something similar i think we could say there is but is there something similar in the psychical apparatus in the way that traces are recorded and the way memories are stored quote unquote well, in our psyche that that kind of brings into question this part whole analogy right our memories we can think about about it that way right there's there's little bits and pieces of memories that a lot of times one of the things that freud says is even if he and i think freud holds to this that memories are permanent he does hold to this and whether or not that's true i think that the speculative truth of it whether or not it's factually true is the fact that psychoanalysis is supposedly a means of accessing and working with these memories even if they shift from quote unquote actual fact there are permanent traces and it's the shiftings that are interesting because it shows the effects of we could say repression for example right in formation of symptoms it's actually the memories that shift that are indicators of some sort of let's say pathology symptom formation something to work with and it's the repressions that fail that are more interesting to Freud than the successful repressions i think derrida points that out early in the essay because successful repressions would not leave a trace of their activity we wouldn't be able to um have an indication of symptom formation it's the repressions that fail when something goes wrong when the machine breaks down that we get some sort of evidence to work with. Does that make sense? The way I, I put that? I mean, the way that I thought about thought of it was that because whatever the traces exist in the unconscious, like sort of by definition, we're not aware of them. It's only when the symptom, and even then, right? Like we don't become aware of the trace until we go into analysis and the sort of, and through the unconscious speech, reveal the sort of traces something like that right i think this is why derrida wants to look at the psycho re-look at the psychopathology of everyday life when he's saying freud may be wrong to underestimate the importance of parapraxis slips of the pen and say that they're just extensions of slips of the tongue right that speech in the way that you just said it more generally encompassing also all the effects of language including writing that there should be something there should be particular attention paid to to writing and not just subordinated again to speech like has been done in classically in metaphysics that's one of obviously derrida's right one of the first things he puts forward in deconstructing logocentrism or whatever the fuck is to show how writing has constantly sort of been subordinated to to speech and right. one of the ways of doing this is and this is what Derrida means by Freud's Platonism. The words that we see in, in the essay is hypomnesia or hyponesic, right? Which is basically memory is because of memories 
because it's it can fail us and we don't have to be neurotics as Freud says in the opening sentence of the mystic pad right it even normal people need to sometimes write shit down to remember I think the, the platonic inspiration that Derrida is pointing out is that traditionally in logocentrism, writing has always been conceived merely as a kind of technical aid to living memory. A supplement, right? Yeah. A supplement to, okay. to, yeah. It's interesting because that was kind of, I was kind of like, well, to me, logocentrism, to me, the written word seems more, to me, that falls into more what I would almost think logocentrism would be because mm. there's a certain linearity, there's a continuity. There's a very direct, I see, I see, you know what I mean? I see, yeah. And not only that, but the ability to like go back and access that, right? Versus speech, once speech is gone, if it hasn't been recorded, then it's it's gone. Um, so <laughs> it's kind of interesting that he does this kind of reversal. Maybe that's sort of the almost the point, right? Because, you yes. know, I get the sense that like in the sense of the RK or the like the archive of knowledge and writing goes to science that goes to rationalism yep versus speech would be more like akin to mythology and an inex an exactness in a sort of way like it's a mythology could be considered maybe like a human science maybe the first human science because it's trying to use symbol symbols to say something about the world like to make right you're making a hypothesis about the world you're creating a theory it's just not there's no hard sort of evidence and it's the oral tradition right versus the right. written tradition so I don't, I don't know it's kind of a yeah it just whatever antagonism there it does become interesting this question of i mean we do have oral histories histories that are passed down yeah so we know that speech can speech and writing when it comes to recording can elide some of those classical oppositions that we see uh, in the history of metaphysics. And you're right about mythology being this attempt to explain origins for which we have no real means of proving scientifically. There is a means of investigating the world, whether it be symbolically or whatnot, by positing origins from something that is unknown but obviously as for as derrida wants to point out right all origins are already displaced deferred they're always already um the originary is always already repeated and freud does this too not just with origins but with anything original he's he's thinking of them as repetitions like when in the negation essay and we talked about this i think with um alenka zapanchich right when he's talking about the the question of finding in the outside world that which accorded with the good that we took inside, it's always a question of refinding the object, not of finding that original object. It's always this, this repetition, this reproduction of a quest. But in any case, yeah, I mean, I think that for the platonic, and again, Plato is, is, is going to set up a lot of these logocentric, at least, oppositions. If we remember in, in the Federalist, Socrates is, so to speak, like, when he's first meeting with Phaedrus in the Grove and blah, blah, blah. He's like, he's like hiding this little, he's like looking down and he's hiding and he's, he's reading this speech and it doesn't sound anything like a true, like a true spontaneous, beautiful speech. And then he kind of like gives a lie and says, okay, I was reading this, this thing. The real book is like inside us, blah, blah, blah. Right. I think that, that it's this opposition between the dead letter 
of a past that can never really be present fully versus the full presence of speech, the, you know, the dead letter can't be resurrected to like provide arguments for itself. Whereas the dialogical present, I can provide, right. Yeah. I can can provide defense. You can, yeah. So I think that that's where Derrida is saying Freud is at his most platonic when he, when he says the writing pad analogy fails when we consider that I can't retrieve from the writing slab in any accessible way what has been written on it. Once that sheet is lifted, at a certain point, we're going to find a, a whole, if we examine the slate, the substrate, we're going to find a whole series of, of traces that coincide in such a way that they're, they're illegible. We can't pull upward from the slate to the sheet like right. we can yeah. in, in living memory. In rever- also in reverse, yeah. Like- so I think that's where Derrida puts some pressure on to show that Freud in complicating temporality, et cetera, speech and writing to a certain extent and presence in the history of metaphysics also continues it, right? This is, this is almost the sublation, if you will, of the history of metaphysics in Freud. Uh, it's not the word that Derrida used, but one could see it, see it being used easily that there is a, there is a kind of complication and a higher stage, a higher scene of writing in Freud, but it also repeats some of these classical oppositions. The idea of the originary and the trace, I don't see how you quite undermine the originary with the idea of the trace per se. Like I'd not quite, I don't know if I can like fully, I don't know if I fully agree with Derrida there. Like I sort of do in a way, but like, what do do you mean? I suppose it'd be like the impact of the, the impact of the excitation. If it is leaving a trace in the, in the psychical apparatus and that, trace is accessed in a certain way later in the conscious mind in a, or for to some degree or like impacted by the yeah. conscious mind then how do you not then how do you how are you really undermining the originary with wolfman as the example right it's like his witnessing of his parents having sex then expresses itself in the dream so there is there is an originary two things one i'll start with the wolfman first we don't have factual evidence to know, and this is oh, right, part, yeah. this is part gotcha. of the oscillation, whether or not that was actually perceived. Freud tries, and this is part of the this is part of what Laplanche tries to bring out, especially in his writings. But you know, Freud is not quite sure, and this is what leads him to abandon the seduction theory in the 1890s, where he's always looking for quote unquote actual events in the external world that happened. Mm-hmm in childhood sexuality, like molestation, rape, etc., that would cause these pathologies that he's seeing. And he realizes that, in fact, the opposition between fantasy and reality is not so hard yeah. or not okay. so hard and fast. Right. And so we're not sure in the Wolfman, even if Freud continues this, he, again, he calls into question his initial opposition between fantasy and, and reality. Even if he calls it into question with with the Wolfman, he's still trying to go back to this primal scene. And for him, in the last instance, if you had to push him, even if he makes 
certain suggestions. Otherwise, it seems like he's still trying to pinpoint an actual event that happened that was perceived and thereby gave genesis to the fantasy. Derrida's trying to say, like, look, no, Freud has it right. When he's questioning that opposition and deconstructing it, he has it right that the origin is not necessarily the actual, right, versus the fantasy. The fantasy isn't necessarily the derivative of or the repetition of an actual event. This is the importance of something like primal repression, where there is this, and, and itself is displaced, right? But there's supposedly in Freud, this originary repressed that gives rise to the activity of secondary repressions proper that we, that's what we consider in psychoanalysis. Secondary repressions are based on this primal nexus of repressed. And I think for Derrida, that opposition is the same type of opposition that we find in fantasy and reality. And also the same type of opposition we find in speech and writing whereby writing would be subordinate to speech. Whereas I think Derrida is trying to show, push far enough, we can see that writing actually makes speech possible. In, for example, the if we go like with Freud to the way that the cycle apparatus works, how are we to have a differentiation into ego, id, superego, or into unconscious, conscious, preconscious without the layering of traces? Right. And the without a, without a, an inscription surface. Right, exactly. How are we to have speech, so-called the traditional classical notion of speech, without some sort of mechanism of writing already at work in the formation of our psychical apparatus? We're not born with an unconscious. I kind of agree with, with Laplanche on this. We're not born with an unconscious. We aren't born with the ability to speak. That's what infant means in enfants, right? Speech, speechless. There is a learning development there's and and we don't have to look at psycho psychoanalysis for this obviously there's all kinds of science. feral children and so forth right and they, there's all kinds of experiments in in, in psychology and, and scientific works on this stuff i'd say scientific as opposed to psychoanalysis because let's be fair science in the hard sense right, right. yeah again i'm bringing up to these classical oppositions that can be deconstructed but only for the sake of expedience sure and, yeah. I, and I think that that's that's part of the problem too that we have to be very careful this is this is part of the the hysterical aspect of reading and talking <laughs> and writing about derrida there's a point at which you start to i'm just thinking of one of my first teachers he would have been in grad school probably in the early 90s and he's just telling me about like his Derrida phase and he <laughs> saw it too in uh, his, his friends. Like there's a point which you just start to like imitate and repeat Derrida. You start to do Derridian moves. It's, it, it is kind of a hysterical thing. One can start because now you're starting to like deconstruct and unbinarize and, and sublate everything. I, I imagine this happens in, in a, a lot of these prominent thinkers when one, one starts to like, kind of circle the drain, if you will, <laughs> of these oppositions and these means of these modes of speech. That's the thing, like for expedience sake, we, we do sometimes fall on these conventional notions and then have to catch ourselves, right? And, and kind of call these things into question. That's one of the things that uh, I think in Anti-Oedipus, right? When they first bring up Derrida, which I believe is in chapter three, the famous anthropological chapter, right? Savages, barbarians, civilized men, where they are looking at the development of writing for them. They agree with Derrida very much, right? That 
in fact, if we look at it, writing speech presupposes writing, right? Because for them, marking is primordial, right? Desire plants flags and bodies and marks them. This is the marking the out of, of, cruelty, yeah. of a territoriality of a code. Exactly. It doesn't start with exchange. This is their entrance into the debate of anthropologists and ethnologists and even to some extent e economists, if you will. You don't start with exchange as though bodies were already marked by some sort of natural value, let's say, or a natural code in, in, inherent in all things. In fact, territorialization, the territorial machine, begins with coding, with marking. Is that the primal repression? You did. I'm glad you did bring that up. Mm -hmm. Just to clarify, what what is the primal repression per se, or is that is that even? Am I like? I mean, I, I mean, I would say, I would say, I, I don't want. I mean, does that? Let me give you my. Yeah, go for sort it. Sort of speculative bullshit here would be like, okay, it's almost like whenever the membrane comes into play, like whenever life emerges and folds back on itself to create a membrane between itself and the world, is that the primal repression? What I would say, and I'm going to use like Laplanche's terms, because Laplanche takes Freud's seduction theory, which was jettisoned and got rid of, he generalizes it and universalizes it, whereby he says, look, when we are born, we are born without an unconscious, even if we have the, as we know from how life works, we have that potential to develop one. So as we are growing from the very first, I think Laplanche is thinking about the fact that, for example, in, and we know this from experience that children need skin to skin contact. We could look at that. It, they need attention, love, blah, blah, blah. In the very act of caregiving, the adult is giving off unconscious sexual, he calls them sometimes shards, he calls them sometimes messages, and they are indecipherable and un. They're not just indecipherable to a certain extent for the adult, but obviously for the for the infant without an unconscious. And they they embed, almost stake out and invest a part of the psychical system that will develop around these little unconscious, indecipherable messages. They will kind of stake out, if you will, the um, the territory that will so like the partial develop. objects. We could call them partial objects to a certain extent, except that. I think that the partial objects involved would be the most general one that even Freud looks at is, and Deleuze and Guattari, they start their anti-Oedipus with is the, yeah, right, the mouth the, and the breast. The, the mouth and breast machines. And it's not to say that even if there is a pleasure, so to speak, accorded to the, to the, it's even in the pleasure given to the child, but also the pleasure received from the mother, let's say. Right. Yeah. Even in that, there is a sexual indecipherable message. And again, this is why it's generalized and universalized. It's not that there is an, a conscious activity of seduction on the part of the mother or, yeah. or, or the I mean, caregiver. Reminds it's, me too of uh, yeah. our discussion on transference love as well. Exactly. Not to like derail us per that, but just no, no, no. kind of just uh, brought it back to mind. You're right. And in the transference stuff, when Freud first theorizes transference, he uses metaphors of, of writing. He, he says, what are transferences? They are new additions or facsimiles of fantasies and impulses <laughs> that are brought to light during analysis. So he's using this notion of as though there are these reprints. I think I, I mentioned that in our episode. But in any case, yeah, I mean, like, so in terms of the primal repressed, I think 
LaPlanche makes an advance over Freud, who's never quite clear about what is this primal, what is this originarity, this primordial nature of the repressed. But that unconscious, let's say, nexus that is implanted in the child only it's it is again this is the latency period it's only with maturation as we grow psychically and intellectually and as we also go through puberty and are able to develop the wherewithal and again this is all highly individual not just on the ontogenetic sense but in the way in which psychogenesis works in its associations of ideas blah 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 but in our maturation in our when we finally develop not just intellectually but sexually and we develop the skill set if you will the know-how but also just the intelligence the maturity etc to start to decipher unconscious sexual elements we're already constituted if you will from all of that caregiving in the initial stage because for for Laplanche, he looks at Freud's initial notions. He calls it, in Strake, he calls it the anaclytic, but it's this notion that the our self-reservative drives, for example, eating, right? Feeding at the breast. The sexual drive leans on the self-preservative drive. They're sort of speak inextricable at first, and then they start to diverge at a certain point. After we have overcome the initial stages of our helplessness, after we begin to develop and mature intellectually and unconsciously, and then we enter that period where sexual messages are able to be decipherable. You know, sometimes children are very precocious for, it could just be random reasons. Other times it could be because they are subject to overt sexual seduction and molestation, whatever, these things can happen but they happen at their own time and pace and it's highly individual. And then it's with that, that we were able to, let's say, see the effects of what we might call the primal repressed, which would be these embedments of these messages around like this constellation of, of these shards of unconscious sexual messages that have been laid down, that laid down, that trekked out the path. And this is part, this is the path breaking that Derrida's interested in in the excitations of the psychical system that that break out these paths and lay down these roads for associations to travel, let's say. So I think that that's, that's part and parcel of what Derrida, Laplanche is talking about something in different language, but in the same thing that Derrida is interested in the beginning of this essay with this notion of a, of a path breaking, of a laying down of a way or of a road for, for excitations to travel, which you know, um, not just constitute the means of, of movement of excitations in the dream, but in the psychical system in general. That's how I understand the primal repressed is that from the get go, there are these unconscious embedments of psychical material that will coalesce and congeal and constellate for which later, once we can consider ourselves active free individuals we have no real sovereignty over we're sort of already by the time we were able to decipher those messages even if we can't retrieve them consciously but by the time we we're able to decipher sexual messages in general or even messages in general right because we're obviously not born with that writing apparatus either in the cycle that's when 
the primal repressed has already constituted what will become our unconscious and the way that it functions amidst the other systems. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. So it's not like there is a first event, even like, because let's say Freud thinks one and a half to three is when the Wolfman sees the, mm -hmm. sees his mother and father in the bedroom fucking. It's not that that's, that constitutes the primal repress. That's a part of it, even if a significant part that may have happened to form it. But again, this is, this is all the thing. Like, did the unconscious sexual message transmitted from the mother to the baby in the first breastfeeding, is that some kind of primal scene? No, not for Freud, not in the sense in which he thinks it. But to a certain extent, it contributes to the beginnings of what will be, quote unquote, the primal repressed. And the primal repressed is what sets the machine in motion for secondary repressions, the repressions proper that we think about when we when Freud is generally talking about repression. Mm -hmm. He's talking about secondary repression unless gotcha. he really right. is trying to think about this origin story. But to a certain extent, I mean, like even with Laplanche, these sexual messages, these undecipherable messages are already repetitions. There's nothing really primal about them because the adult was a child, was an infant once. The system goes back. There's no chicken egg, if you will. The system of indecipherable sexual embedments of, of these messages goes back in time there's no yeah. there's no original pervert if you will <laughs> of the there's no primal pervert of the horde who first implanted these messages if you will it's there is no origin for it even if there may be a, we could say an individual origin there's an infinite regress in the line of individuals this is why i don't really like to talk too much about primal repression <laughs> i think it's a it's a term that Freud really starts using around the, uh, around the Schraber case. It's fairly late, if you think about it, in 1913, that Freud starts really trying to suss out primal repression and secondary repression and, and inform this theory about how is it that the unconscious is attracting this gravitational force of repression from below, whereas there's also from above how is it that there's this for pressure? Because I think for Freud, it takes an immense amount of psychical energy. And I've said this before to you, the systems are working in conjunction to repress from above and to attract, to repulse from above and to attract from below so that repression can lock together these symptoms and ideas in, in, in symptom formation. And obviously we can't necessarily, I mean, I obviously the, the work of working through of, being able to work through memories and, and symptoms in order to sort of reconnect and reorganize the libidinal investments in order to open up the space for associating ideas differently and, and filling in links that have been broken or, or if you will, twisted and mangled and, and be able to reconnect the repressed ideas and get them in such an organization that they can be vented and abreacted, blah, blah, blah. All of that I think for Freud, in terms of psychoanalysis and the working through, by the very fact of making part of this conscious, even if that's not the whole thing, but that begins the ball rolling, it obviously loosens the unconscious grip as well. We can't have direct access to the unconscious, obviously, right? Unmediated, but there's part and parcel liberating that psychical energy expended in the repression of, of ideas has to work both ways.
And I think that for Freud and the transference as a resistance, that shows to how the unconscious in its it wants to kind of retain, if you will, that original configuration of the primal repressed. And it's it's the transferences that are means of resisting as we get closer to that traumatic node, that kernel to unlock and and loosen, there's there's a little bit of backlash and a means of trying to keep those configurations from becoming metastable, right? There is an inertia in the psychical system, I think, at that level. It is pretty interesting that I think it was Derrida that said life protects itself by repetition. I think he says that, yeah, towards the end of the essay, right? I remember this clearly. You're right. Let's see if we can find it. Wouldn't that sort of go to death drive or something? Or just the repetition of the symptom? Yeah, I mean... Because like you said, it sort of stabilizes around, like it stabilizes the, I don't know, the structure of the unconscious, right? It it creates the sort of writing surface. I don't know. There's... It keeps those those pathways periodically connected. And so the repetition of periodically connecting those pathways is a kind of security system. It is a stability system. I mean, even reproduction, like sexual reproduction, would be a means by of life protecting itself. This right. is where I was getting into the whole like idea of the membrane in the like organism, which goes into a, my whole a whole other diatribe I had about like Death as repressed, death being the first repre- thing that's repressed to go back to, you know, it's this choice of do I want to sort of die on this installment plan or do I want to take my death immediately, right? Because there's no uh, there's no purpose for me to live, right? I have to repress death in a sense to give myself the means by which to invest in life. Right. right. There's, no, there's what's no pre-given the... purpose. There's no exactly, pre-given yeah. purpose for me to live. You're talking about Derek uh, Baudrillard, right? And and the yeah, to some degree chapter. Of... But I mean, this. But you're becomes... trying to link it, right? You're trying right. to link it exactly. That was the trace that was in my my head, perhaps, from those discussions. Derrida says that death sort of makes life possible, but it also like those are strange dialectic at play with death making life possible, but also ending life. The end generate the noctroglycite almost of death, sort of creating a purpose and some type of weird Heideggerian sense. I don't know. I'm being a little bit sloppy, but well, our being our being toward death is that opening of projecting our possibilities in this futural sense, right? So yeah, I didn't see the the thing about life per se, but he does say in looking at the how the writing pad functions, and we said there's that intermediary celluloid layer that protects yeah the uh, the top layer he says um the fine wax paper would be scratched or ripped without it there is no writing which does not devise some means of protection to protect against itself i think that that's part of we could say if freud likens the protective layer to a kind of dead layer if you will just as there is we could say there are you know, we can think about dead layers of skin or something that that happened just in the course of of regeneration of cells. You know, there is a kind of dead layer or a deadened layer that protects life against itself, against life. That's how I would read what you're trying to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, in- no, totally that you're you're right on. 
I think um, we've had this discussion too about the single celled organism, like creating a membrane. Yeah. And maybe that, a, again, that's, a what, that's where I was thinking about, okay, there's almost like, you know, m maybe to abandon Freud, like, and just use the concept of primal repression, but like, this is a literal primal repression that yeah. creates life, a sort of death that creates life in a sense. <laughs> so you're, you're likening primal repression to Freud's speculative investigation of biology when he looks at the single-celled organism and how right. it has yes. a protective layer. Exactly. There's a yeah. kind of repression of the quote-unquote, we could use Derrida here, the full presence of life. There needs to be this exactly sublation yeah. of an exteriorization right, right. in order to protect from obviously the outside stimuli and excitations are necessary, are we could say part and parcel of life. Right. There needs to be some sort of intermediary, some sort of membrane that exactly. perhaps we could to keep the organism from being dislike. dead. Right. Interesting. I thought. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And and again, we are using conventional terms, life and death. Even Derrida sure. does here in this essay. But I think that you're right to liken the protective layer to a dead layer, a dead end layer, because that's not the that intermediary is not the one that receives the excitations. It just, it's meant to protect. Does that make sense? Well, I like, think that the top layer would protect, the layer below would receive the excitations as well as the the third layer, like the waxy substance. We mark down on the plastic piece, right? The plastic piece protects the layer below, which sticks to the wax. Right. And that pressure. Okay, sorry. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. I I, I misspoke. I see what you're Just saying. to clarify yeah. a little bit. Yeah, no, no, you're right. I, but we need that uh we need that protective layer. We need that protective layer. Without death, we wouldn't would we destroy our like you know what I mean? Would the organism be destroyed because it would seek out the intense intensity would destroy it. The drive would seek out some type of experience that would rupture be, the whole organism yeah, or something like that there, there, there would be too much life there needs to be some sort of whether we think about it again as a container to contain the sort of vital substance you know obviously you can think about all kinds of traditions even in like the atomists like like lucretius considers the soul to be the lightest atoms but it needs it needs the body's air tightness and it's it's upon death that air tightness gets substance needs a mode or something right <laughs> well maybe i'm uh, fucking that up but it just kind of reminded well, me a little bit of our discussion with gil last week i guess we could go down that road but it would it would require a lot of <laughs> it would require a lot of uh translations yeah <laughs> which is also brought up interestingly enough in this in I'd this like, essay yeah i like this notion that derrida looks at these aspects of freud calling translation into question and i think that it's good because what freud is trying to do is to try to say that the writing we consider as a part of the psychical apparatus and of dreams in particular is not any kind of conventional writing we can translate conventional writing to a certain degree but if we translate dreams we lose something because there is, as Derrida points yeah, out, materiality kind of, doesn't transfer. There is a materiality of speech or translate. Exactly. There is materiality of speech. And this is why Freud, 
either calls dreams something closer to picture puzzles or rebuses. It's the very fact that it's, I think Freud is trying to, even while retaining certain aspects in conventional interpretation, he wants to say that dreams cannot be codes. If they were codes, then they could be easily translated. They are not codes. They are, they're not merely pictorial either. They're not just these pictures that have a code that would decipher them. They mm -hmm. are a whole mixture of, well, I think for Freud, at least, they are, and this is where I think the life-death stuff, right, because death would be representation as a means for, as a necessary means, if you will, but not a replacement for the life of deference and whatnot the Elan Vital of Deference. But in any case, yeah, I mean, dreams are rebuses, right? So you can have, and this is what Deleuze and Guattari are, are thinking about in uh, the opening chapter of Anti-Oedipus and the Desiring Machine chapter when they're like, you got an anus and uh, you might have a word here and, and you know, you, you've got all these little organs, but you've also got some excrement. And of course, for them, it's not about interpreting. It's how the machine functions, the desiring machines function. It's not about yeah. interpreting them. What is it? Produce? So I think that's where two, you know, one could could push back on Derrida, but we're not doing Deleuze and Guattari <laughs> today. I just meant to say they're thinking of rebuses where you can have an image or a picture, doesn't necessarily matter initially what it represents, and then a word. And I think for Freud, his question is where is the determining level for each of these things? And I think this is too where Freud doesn't like treating schizophrenics, right? He's treating neurotics who are obsessed with this question of meaning. So it makes sense. It works for the talking cure and, and interpretation. But I, and let's watch quote him. He doesn't quite like schizophrenics because they treat words as things and vice versa, right? Thing representations and word representations on the level of schizophrenic are at equal play. And so to a certain extent, their speech is much more like the dynamics of dreams, which while Freud loves interpreting dreams and understands that in an analysis, I think this goes back again to that kernel of fantasy reality there is a sense in which in the case histories freud is trying to get back to that kernel of reality mm -hmm. to lay the basis for which fantasies can arise and if reality and fantasy begin to conflict and, and cohere and then the truth of fiction comes about that kind of threatens the stable basis for the means of interpreting system symptoms even if not ready-made or fully clear, there needs to be at least a working differentiation between the fantastical and the uh, and the real. I get a bit confused here because then Derrida goes on to talk about, he doesn't go into it very much, but he almost like the cipher and the, um, almost <laughs> like the crypt, the crypt, what is it? The cryptogram? Yeah. Are there being some sort of, singular cipher that would allow you to translate the dream into but this is what freud else. is critiquing this is what in the in the first chapter of the interpretation of dreams he will go to the point of almost sketching a kind of rough history of the interpretation of dreams and say that some of the most sophisticated have come up with a kind of dictionary if you will of dreams whereby 
certain images will always correspond to certain interpretations. Yeah. Well, Derek, that's that's about that's this the, too. Yeah, he does. And he's he talks to- about the uh, I think the Egyptians who already had their like practice of dream interpretation, but it was predicated on their already exist their pre-existing vocabulary of interpretations or meanings or like symbology or something. And Derrida is trying to bring that up, the Egyptians, insofar as he's showing, I think he's quoting Warburton, who shows that the gods gave humans writing hieroglyphs, but but they also give dreams. And so there's an analogy, this quote unquote ontotheological basis for translating dreams by a code. And Derrida and Freud to a certain extent, but Derrida specifically is trying to obviously call this into question. Freud calls it into question. Derrida is trying to highlight how Freud does it. Because if dreams were um, translatable, we would lose the kind of focus on individuation. And I'm not just talking about, uh, again, uh, biological individuation, or really we're talking about psychical individuation, the way in which psychical systems for each individual repress and associate ideas highly individually. If all our dreams could be reduced to the same code and there would be some sort of universal Tower of Babel, some sort of dictionary that could translate them, I think that we would lose, obviously we'd be more like Borgs and cyborgs, all we'd be running the same operating system, right? And even if roughly that might be true to a certain extent on the hardware, on the software level, <laughs> it's like, Freud's trying to show like, dude, we, we're not, we're not always working on that level. Everyone has, again, psychical systems, repressions of ideas are highly individual and highly malleable and therefore can't be, there's no universal translation code for them. Which I think even goes back to, again, our discussion with Gil a little bit to some degree, not, not to get too far into that, but I think we did discuss something along the lines of the different stimuli that you face in the world are going to sort of shape the way that you respond to other stimuli in the future right the, and that can be highly individual yeah the right like what what the, excitations are you exposed to at what time and so forth and what so affects on. yeah what yeah, constellation exactly. of affects precisely are, yeah. are composing the forces are composing with your your mind and your body to affect and be affected I think that that Spinoza would say he says something similar about our association of ideas lead us to um, to be affected and, and increase and decrease our power in highly individual ways. Even if he he's generalizing the right, ways yeah. in which these forces work, he's not again thinking that we all have the same associations. Even if we f- may form associations in a general way, and I think this too is what Freud believes the associations to which we are kind of constrained to form due to our psychical life and to external events are obviously highly individual. Yeah, it's like we're condemned to a process, but not a a determined response or something like that. We're determined to respond, but the way that we respond is not determined. And so that's where the difference between individuals and their repressions can arise or something like that. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. We didn't talk about Nietzsche last week, but I, I think about how Nietzsche will use a kind of term that I could see Derrida deconstructing, but Nietzsche likes to talk about our constitutions, certain constitutions. And I think for Nietzsche, he he wants to see certain philosophies are direct 
outcomes of certain constitutions. In fact, I think for him, different philosophies represent different modes of health and well-being and 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 it's our constitution i love he he talks about in twilight of the idols which is a text we've talked about he he talks about some obscure now obscure at least italian dietary writer who lived to be 112 or something and ate nothing but like beans and rice all day and and each is like no it's because you had this constitution that you ate that you were <laughs> susceptible to eating this and it's not because you ate this that right, you had yeah. this this long life. So I think that he's thinking about these things again, as I said, that could be deconstructed, this, this sort of physical constitution, this what our bodies are, what sort of our bodies are have tendencies to be predisposed to based on sort of what composes well with their powers. And yeah, I think that that's why we can we can think about how people might react in the face of certain situations based on, again, their, their predispositions, their constitutions, whether right, rightly or wrongly, but yeah, they're highly individual. And I think that's the same with, with dream. What was it that Derrida says? I don't think he's quoting Freud here, but he's extrapolating where he says the dreamer invents his or her own grammar. And that's again, what complicates translation and why Freud not only will rely on the metaphor of writing, but will also complicate it because one can imagine private languages being susceptible to translation if one had a code. This is part of like, I watched this the other day. This is part of the, um, the movie's called The Turing Test. We talked about it with this Griffin, right? But like it goes into Alan Turing's, like dramatizes his uh, supposedly his first homosexual love, but his falling into love with cryptography and, and being able to write these little messages and code to one another, you know? So I think that that's that idea of writing is a classical idea of writing that I think Derrida wants to call into question with grammatology, with graphology, the psychoanalytic graphology, right? That it's that type of, it's that type of writing that Derrida wants to show Freud calls into question even when he relapses into a classical metaphysical logocentrism, there are aspects of Freud in the scene of writing that are admirable for pushing past a kind of metaphysics of presence because the dream is not, even the rebus is not a good representation of what the dream supposedly does and is because it's a scene. It is a dramatization of, of ideas to use kind of Deleuzian language, right? It is a dramatization of the idea. It is a, it is a scene. It's not a static, quote unquote, dead thing that can be easily translated. It is this sort of living dynamic process. It's not a symbol. It is a kind of, it is always a metamorphosis. And we can't judge it by a sort of static end or outcome or output. It is the process. It is the dream work. The dream works what's important, right? Not not the manifest meaning, obviously, and not even the latent meaning to be quote unquote deciphered. It is the dream work. The work is what's important. So even the dream can't be like reduced, as Freud often wants to do, to simple wish fulfillment. That is a kind of static output. What happens to form the dream is what Derrida is interested in and sees in it a kind of analogy with writing in a in a non-classical sense 
And that's why he's interested in, in the paths that are broken by, by the cycle system. It's, it's those paths that are also kind of like the spacing of, of our writing. This might be jumping a little bit, but I thought it was interesting that Derrida used mise-en-scene, which I think in his, right, it's like a term that you see in film, but I think the Webster's Dictionary, like, I think that's the primary one that you'll see used to, today. But I think there's a secondary one that's like the physical setting of an action, which would sort of, it's, it's I don't know, there's something with dream, like the dream and film, yeah. or like because of the gaps and the cuts and that kind of shit these terms the mise terms there's a lot of them in french it's a yeah. very conventional mise yeah mise en place right like it's not just setting the table it's all the work that goes into preparing food before it's cooked right cutting onions and carrots and shit you know preparing it, it is an active thing and and even mise en scene it, we use it in as you said in language a lot of time to talk about setting if you translate it literally, it'd be like setting the stage, but it's not quite that, right? The mise-en-scene it involves a whole activity that goes into, as you said, the staging, it, I think would be a, a fairly good, a better translation to a certain extent, but it's, it goes into, I, I like dramatization of, of the idea of the dream. The dream as a mise-en-scene is not just something that is set. And then the activity takes place. It is part and parcel of the activity without which the activity cannot take place. That um, even makes sense in the, if you're using the filmic definition, I think too. Okay. Yeah. Good. Maybe not because you have to, I guess it, it sort of depends. It depends. And this is what I'm saying. This is why a lot of these terms aren't translated. They're just kept in French because to translate them, you're going to lose something. So you just have to mise en scène, even mis M-I-S is a past participle. It implies that something has already taken place and been set. I think that that is already a betrayal of what the idea means. This is not something that's just taken place in the past and then present activity happens. This already, this calls into question temporalization, right, temporality, yeah, exactly. um, linearity, and quote-unquote full presence because mise-en-scene is, is not something that just happened in the past and then activity happens mise-en-scene is is like this we could liken mise like it almost is the film the reality or whatever the reality that is created is the mise-en-scene like it's the placement of the and the spacing of the participants and the scenery and so forth it's the I in think an imminent way yeah. that yeah that it becomes the film is the placement of the so it's not like a it's like an ongoing it's not a it it's is like a Present participle out of some shit like that. Well, well, yeah, we could we could we could think about it that Present, way. I think perfect some shit. <laughs> um or a gerund. <laughs> Since the gerund is a noun. So yeah, I would I would liken it more to a gerund than a but I, I see it as uh breaching. It's the breaching, it's the path breaking that Derrida is talking about. I, I can I can liken mise-en-scene, the dramatization of the idea as the path breaking that is what Freud is interested in. When he's looking in 1895 at building this machine of neurones that interact and they are literally breaking paths in the psychical system for excitations to travel and communicate and periodically invest. So the path breaking is part and parcel of the perceptual memory system, right? Um, one can think of the very fact of like leaving traces in the unconscious 
you know, these registrations are pathbreaking. We can think of that substrate, that wax substrate allows for pathbreaking to happen by having this, this surface that for, for providing this receptive surface, this infinite receptivity along with the perpetual virginal space for inscription. This is the thing that Freud has been looking for for 30 years. And it's only with the mystic writing pad that he finally finds the analogy of these, this dual necessity because a sheet of paper won't do it. And a, a blackboard, a slate that can be wiped clean, won't do it. It needs to have both. You need to have infinite receptivity along with, with this perpetual mutability virginal. or something. Yeah. Yeah. This perpetually virginal, this perpetually flesh, fresh slate with an infinite depth. You need, you need a kind of infinite surface and an infinite depth. And you've only had one or the other in sort of in conventional senses in the history of writing. And it's with the mystic writing pad that we can, we can see an analogy for what the psychical system represents. Interestingly too, I think he I want to say it's Derrida actually, that says there's like a, there, no, it was Freud. It was Freud because of the examples he uses. He draws this comparison between the technology that we use to store and our actual perceptual apparatus, like our physiobiological processes. Like he gives the example of the ear, <laughs> the ear trumpet and glasses and. Yeah, these prosthetics in a broad sense, the, the yeah. prostheses that allow, that extend our. Precisely. The yeah. capacity of our senses and abilities, right? The techne, if you will, the prosthetic. Freud's always very interested in these prostheses. Uh, he talks about he, the camera, you know, the aperture of the lens and so forth. Something that I thought was kind of interesting as well. We don't have to go down this road, but just to mention it, I thought it would be interesting. And maybe I'm perhaps wrong, but speculatively here, be interested to see where this kind of this aspect of the discussion would play into Deleuze's time and movement image relative to like the dream and the mise-en-scene of the dream and the like perceptual apparatus due to that resemblance or that like sort of way that the trace of our biology is extended into the technical or something right. like that. Yeah, I, I guess that's the thing that what Derrida tries to show is if we start with a neurological machine in 1895, which was never published in the project for scientific psychology, and then we end up with the writing pad analogy, right? So we get we end up with the writing machine. It's it's in the interpretation of dreams that Derrida focuses for a short time. And I think this is what you're talking about on how the psychical apparatus is likened to an optical machine. One of which is, a, I mean, Derrida, brilliantly kind of pulls out these passages of because a lot of the work is the, a lot of the path is broken by by freud not to question derrida's originality because it's there but derrida has freud do a lot of the work breaking a lot of the paths breaching a lot of these threads of the unconscious and conscious likens to like a microscope and yeah and a telescope and and these this is the cinematic ontology that i know that you're right. sort of interested in Exactly. Visual metaphors. Exactly. I'm glad you uh I'm glad you read my notes about that part because that's yeah. definitely where I was like, oh, okay, this is kind of interesting. I guess the question would be what I'll do, because I do want to break this path with you to continue the analogy. <laughs> 
we could look at this with Cristobal Escobar next month when we have him on to discuss the intensive image. I think that'd be maybe a good time to come back yeah. to this question of of the opticality of the unconscious in the interpretation of dreams. It's a book I've read a few times, but I, I hadn't really thought about it since rereading this essay about that optical metaphor. I, I, I would need to track those down and look at them again, but I think it's very interesting. I mean, Descartes talks about it, even Plotinus, and probably before about this oculus mentis, this eye of the mind. The visual metaphor runs throughout, we could say, the history of metaphysics, the history of, mm -hmm. of philosophy, and is this notion of, of, of a mind's eye is even in conventional lay speak still like exists. So it would be interesting to see, not just in Freud, but more generally, this question, as you're saying, of, of a kind of um, cinematic ontology. I think that one of the things that Derrida looks at real quickly is how Freud likens sort of the imprints, the traces in the unconscious as these like photographic negatives, right? He's, he's right. He, yes, yes, yes. I mean, I mean, Freud is thinking about how these technological developments are not just reflecting our sort of internal life, our psychical life, but perhaps inspired by them yeah. in terms of necessity and, and, right. and, and progress in the sciences. So that would be something I think we could return to most definitely. Just real quick to draw that, to like wrap a bow on that. I think there's something interesting about the way that a video or film camera, right? Like the eye, the lens of the eye or whatever, you have the aperture that regulates the amount of excitation or light per se right. that, gets, that gets absorbed into the sensor in like a digital camera per se, or like a film, like the celluloid of film. It's writing with light and darkness yeah, so, which goes back to the space and the gaps and all that kind of shit that Derrida likes to bandy about. You know, Simon Doan has a really interesting analogy. I know he talks about it in the individuation books I translated. It's possible he probably also brings it up in the technical objects book, but he talks about the traditional photographic negatives where he even goes down to the question of definition and fineness of reception based on the molecules of the i think they're silver molecules or some kind of some sort of some sort of silver mixture that the receptive capabilities of the physical substrate of yeah, yeah. the photographic stuff i mean obviously not digital right which has the, its own analogy. but you're right absolutely those early like whenever phot photography was like in its gestational like i'm talking 1870s 1880s yeah, yeah. you did have these like silver oxide chemical okay. things yeah so the granularity of of the capacity you can get down to the molecular level and Simon does a good job at um sort of investigating this capability of perception and recording and registration one can liken it to freud but he's on this material physical level of the of the grains of the molecules and what they make possible and there's a threshold beyond which a certain amount of definition a certain amount of uh let's just say saturation of images that mm -hmm. is not possible to cross unless one were to be able to refine that substrate to go back to the language we've been using right there is a sense in which there is a kind of maximal saturation that's possible based on the materiality of the photograph 
photographic substrate. Yeah, which would kind of go back to like, maybe I'm wrong, but it sounds like death, right? The membrane, the the protection, because if you too much exposure, let's oh, I see, I see, I see. <laughs> and then your photograph is destroyed per se. Right, too much, too much. I mean, this is why dark rooms. I obviously there's still classical photography one can think of, but yeah, sure. why dark rooms are a thing. There right. is a sense in which there needs to be a kind of protection from intensity, from luminous intensity here, right? Obviously, yeah, right. So yeah, I mean, uh, I think that all of that's very apropos. <laughs> How are you feeling about what we what we've done? Pretty good, I think. I'm not sure if there's much else. I mean, obviously, we could talk about more Deridian stuff, but I was trying to stick to the the stuff about Deferance, Architrace. I just that really would require us to read of grammatology and stuff. You see, he's even citing himself. Yeah, that's true. I think that requires more reading and um, this thing about consciousness arising in the perceptual system and not in the permanent traces. I think that goes back to maybe the discussion on originary, though, to some degree, I, I, or I think, like yeah. how we talked about like the cert, the inscription surface has to pre presupposes or predates the writing or something like that. I think for Derrida, just as speech presupposes writing, the consciousness, the perception system presupposes the recording of traces of, of memories. In traditional classical metaphysics, I think Derrida was trying to say, like, when one would think first we have the perception, it's the full present, and then we have memory that quote unquote stores it. And I think Derrida tries to show the how that's not tenable. Just as speech presupposes writing, perception presupposes memory recording and memory traces. This is what he's getting at with the architrace and deference and all these things that he opens up the essay with, but the lecture isn't devoted to that. I think right. that prologue that he added after the fact for mm -hmm. this volume, he's trying to show a little bit, he's trying to do a little bit more legwork to show why he's interested in this question. Gotcha. Why he started reading Freud late after he's trained as a philosopher. So he's, he's, he's looking at the history of philosophy, the history of metaphysics. He's looking at Plato and all these other thinkers and why he comes to Freud late and sees a contiguity and continuity and a, a, a discontinuity, right? He sees, yeah. he sees a uh, Freud is complicating the history of metaphysics in its, in its subordination of writing to speech. But at the same time, he will fall back on these platonic tropes. Like I mentioned earlier, right? That writing would be another technical, a prosthetic aid to memory. Yes, exactly. That's one of the classical tropes. And Derrida wants to wants to show that that's not the case. That would reproduce what I'm talking about here, where perception would be speech, it would be full presence, and then you would have something in the past that would be that would be memory, that would be kind of dead, the dead letter, the dead writing, that would be passive. All of these binary oppositions that Derrida is trying to Unravel. complicate, yeah. complicate, yeah, complicate and and deconstruct and show to be. He not only shows or not only wants to argue that they structure the history of metaphysics, but they are they are a in almost Heideggerian way. He wants to say that they are an inevitable precondition for metaphysics and yet something that is not completely necessary. 
it's just almost something we have to like work through in a quasi Freudian way, right? We yeah. have to kind of have to work through these symptoms, this symptomatic logocentrism. I like that. Um, That's good. It's kind of an inevitable part of our of our history of, of thinking. Now, this is why I think Derrida will take up Heidegger and want to talk about the end of metaphysics, the death of metaphysics, which potentially implies the death of philosophy. I'd have to look more closely at Derrida and see if that becomes a theme. But it, it's a question about what is a post-metaphysical age. I think for, for someone like Deleuze, who wants to think of himself as a metaphysician, this question of a death of metaphysics. And Badu, now when Badu talks about it, he, he will also use metaphysics in a way that is disparaging. But sometimes he, he says metaphysics as a, as a quasi-synonymous with philosophy. But it was with Deleuze at least. And Badu, they are both like, the death of philosophy doesn't really quite make sense. They don't really understand this type of, I mean, what Nietzsche might call exhaustion. With Derrida, I think it's, it's obviously the answer is never simple, but he does seem to inherit, inherit this periodization of metaphysics along with Heidegger, even if he breaks it up into different epics. But I do think he is thinking about the opening of logocentrism and its, and its closure, its enclosing something we have to break through we have to work through i think all of this is is part and parcel of his heideggerianism his fidelity to heidegger but obviously his working through and beyond heidegger this is what stages the possibility for laura wells non-philosophy right he is interested in really derrida seems to set the stage the mise-en-scene of mm. non-philosophy but the Liz also provides one of the means on the other end, because I think Laura Well is for different reasons and for, and for different and with a different understanding than Deleuze is is not seeing philosophy's death anytime in in the future. It's part and parcel of just our constellations of of thought of decision. But with Deleuze, he against Deleuze, he doesn't support what he calls like Deleuze's naivete and his affirmationism, because to a certain extent, if the death of philosophy is suspect for Laura Well, the afterlife, its survival is just as suspect and begins to look like an aborted birth, as he calls it. And this is why non-philosophy is needed, just as cubism and abstract art was needed for non-representational modes of, of visual art 12-tone serialism was needed and has always been really uh, in the history of music but was a breakthrough for the history of western music was needed for these novel creations and mutations do you want to wrap up there yeah all right well, we're going to close out the episode here but thank you all for joining us for another episode of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. We'll see you all next week with uh, Graham Harmon. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Because what happens there is